There are 574 tribal nations represented across the United States. They each have their own cultural richness, way of living, and customs. They also have health disparities and trouble with the acquisition of resources. Tribal Health, the podcast, wants to shed light on them and bring solutions available to improve access for tribal and indigenous communities. And now, your host, Mario Trujillo. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Tribal Health, the podcast. You got me, Mario, here. I'm excited about our guest. She is also in Arizona, but a little bit up north where it's not 110 degrees. But I'm excited. Hey, Nikki, welcome to Tribal Health, the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Mario. She Nikki Cooley, that she's in Kenya, Ani, Nishle. Look, the Nebashishin, Adod, is a Lana E. Dashunale. I could away the Ne, a son in Nishle. I am of the Towering House clan. I'm born for the Reed people. My maternal grandparents are of the water that flows together people. And paternal are from the Many Goats clan. And I come from Shanto and Blue Gap, Arizona on the Dine Nation. And I currently live in Flagstaff, Arizona, Kinsana. And I serve two roles at the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals, or ITEP, as we like to call it. I serve as the co-director of the entire institute with my colleague, Mirdad Khatibi. And I am also the co-manager of the Tribes and Climate Change Program. And I've been with ITEP since 2015. So you're a little bit qualified to talk about climate change then. <laughs> I'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's, okay, let's dive deep. How did you get involved in that area of work? I like this question because I have a unique answer. I actually like to say I started studying and learning about climate change since I came into this world. I grew up in a very rural area, two rural areas of Arizona, what is now Arizona. And I was very fortunate to grow up with my elders, a lot of extended family members who herd sheep and goats and raised livestock and had cornfields or fields of corn, squash, watermelon. And I spent a lot of time outside and very fortunate to be taught by a lot of elders who taught me about the how we needed to protect our environment. So I've been doing that for, I like to say, 42 years. I'm 43, so I'm giving myself a year to walk. <laughs> there you go. So you, that's a big change. I mean, growing up in such a rural area on a farm, and now you're in Flagstaff. It's a smaller city, but how do you keep that passion alive? Or did your passion really grow with moving to bigger towns and bigger cities? I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with my paternal grandfather herding sheep and walking the land and working it. And he had told me at one point that I would have to be ready for fight water. And he said, everybody's fighting over water. And it's going to get even more intense. And he goes, it's the new, it's going to be the new goal, like the, the mineral, like everybody's gold. Yeah. And I, I didn't know what he meant when I, I was pretty young when he told me that. And my passion just grew and grew. 
especially seeing the disparities between people living in urban areas and in rural areas such as tribal nations. Absolutely. I mean, you look at, I, I think every time I watch the news, there's a water crisis somewhere. And I was speaking to one of my friends on one of the reservations in New Mexico, and their reservation is pretty big. And they have established housing for the community that has running water, electricity, but there's also the rural areas that don't really get that, or they have to wait for certain days. And to me, that I, I forget about that because I've grown up, fortunately, in, in a small town or cities that has that. And your grandpa was completely right. There's a fight over water, and it's a necessity for every single human. But the way that we use it is it, it should be precious, you know? And talk to me a little bit about that. I know, like, within climate change, there's the activism side of it, but I... Just hearing a little bit about your story, I know that there's a passion and a, a protection over the precious resources that we have. I think, yeah, just knowing how life is on the reservation or on these tribal lands that don't have the same opportunities to and access to health centers and to food, water, non-processed foods, you get a really good idea of who has what and who ha who doesn't. And so I was fortunate to grow up in that era without electricity or running water. It wasn't until 2018 that my parents got a water pipeline to them. But for years, they didn't hook it up to their home. Uh, and finally, my sister took the reins and then connected the house, their household to the water pipeline. And it was like, it was amazing to see my mother's face the first time, you know, she turned the faucet on at the sink and not knowing that she didn't have to haul water that much. We still haul water for our livestock, uh, but these five gallon buckets, she didn't have to bring in and out when we weren't there to help out, out in the, from the barrels outside. Knowing that she didn't have to do that made our, made, made us worry a lot less and knowing that they were going to be elderly one day. So we really appreciated that, that part of it. And not having access to running water from all your life on your homelands really makes you appreciate and how much water you use. And even now, I'm still careful. I turn off the water when I'm lathering my hair in the shower, and I put a time limit on everybody in the household, like seven minutes and you're done, or I'm shutting it off. <laughs> And growing up in the urban area, I really, I, it's so nice just to turn the faucet on. It's so nice just to flip a switch. It's nice to not have to buy ice for your ice chest. Instead, you have a refrigerator that keeps food longer. And people forget how precious these resources are when they have access to it all the time. And it doesn't cost them as much money as it would for someone who lives an hour or 30 minutes or more from a grocery store. That's wild. I was telling you a little bit before we started recording. And I mean, just for their confidentiality, I'll leave the names out. But I was up in an area in a, in a reservation and there's really nothing where the, the facility is. The hospital's there. There's a gas station. There's a grocery store. And then that's it. And I went into the grocery store to get some things for our nurses 
And the prices were ridiculous. And talking about like a food desert, right? There's nothing around and the prices are ridiculous. You expect the people in the area to pay for it, but it's not a, it's not a win-win situation. And me driving back down to Phoenix, it's everything is there. There's a Safeway right next to a Fry's and there's just, there's good deals. There's coupons. I need to remind myself of all of that every single day. That is the concept that we need people to understand. Those who live and have access to areas, to infrastructure that makes their lives less stressful and easier to remember that there are people that are still living in conditions that would not be acceptable to them in these urban areas. And there's a gas station probably like 15 minutes down from where we live in Shanto. We call it Shanto Marketplace, but it's a gas station with a store, largely junk food. But in the back, they sell some fresh food. A pint of blueberries was $10. It was was way too much. Yeah. And I said, and then you have people constantly preaching to us that we need to take care of ourselves. But if you don't have access to fresh foods, healthy foods, and and you don't have a lot of money to spend, you're going to turn to ramen noodles. You're going to turn to instant potatoes and other junk food. So it's just like a domino effect. Again, I would like to reiterate to people that we need to continue to educate our cohorts, our colleagues, our family members about how disparity in access to healthy foods, clean water, cool homes, or warm areas. Exactly. And I think this summer too, a lot of us are reminded about that with the extreme heats of an air conditioning. Some parts of the country, like the Northeast, don't have air conditioning because their weather doesn't need it. But they're realizing too what a luxury that is. And for me, I'm just like, okay, turn down the air, but it's wild. Now, can you tell me now what capacity do you spread this? What's your work with this? This is probably one of my favorite questions because in my capacity, not only as co-director of ITEP, but as co-manager of the Tribes and Climate Change Program, of which I've been with since 2015, we spread the word. We do educational workshops, webinars, conference sessions. We do a ton of outreach. We also do a lot of technical assistance, one-on-one or in group settings on climate change adaptation. It can be as simple as someone learning how to present climate change to a community, even a tribal community, actually, that does not like the word climate change. So how do you explain that to a tribe, a community, a council that is a little wary of that term? We have done that. And we work with a lot of tribes in our workshops. We have a workshop called Climate Change Adaptation Planning for Tribes. And it's more of an introductory workshop that engages tribes who are wanting to learn more about what that is. Even with the Biden and Harris administration being so supportive of climate change resilience efforts and funding, we still get a lot of people not sure of where they should start. Because coming up with an adaptation plan, a document, means a lot more access to funding 
access to resources that can help them figure out how to save some native plant species that are being heavily impacted by the long-term drought, the degraded soils in their community, and so on. I really do love my job because in a few weeks, I'm going to Santa Cruz, California, and we're going to do a workshop focused on fire and climate change. And we're inviting tribes and community members and federal nonprofit partners who will discuss the impacts of fire and climate change on resources that are really significant to the tribes. And to hold a space is absolutely key to continuing education. I could go on and on about this, but that's one of our main focuses And I just want to mention that we do a lot of elevated courses, too, for tribal professionals or community members who know what adaptation planning is, but they just need to get to the finish line in finishing an adaptation plan or a mitigation plan. And uh, so we play a connector role to federal agencies, state agencies, academics, nonprofit organizations, tribal and non-tribal, who can help a tribe achieve their goals. So you're leading conversation, you're creating space and inviting people in. And I'm really interested about the fire one, that fire session. So many people just think, oh, fires, put them out. But then there's after effects or there's things that are happening during the fire. A couple of years ago in Taos, New Mexico, pretty close to Taos Pueblo, the fires started and they were spreading down. My my grandparents live in Pawake and... They were on fire watch, of course, but there was a mountain lion right down the road in a tree that came from Taos because its home is now gone and it was going towards water right by the river. There's so many things that can be affected by one little change. And I think we all forget about that. So props to you. You're leading the conversation. Mario, we are very fortunate to hold that space for people to discuss and learn And we've been doing this since 2015, but the program actually came about in 2009, the Tribes and Climate Change Program. And that was a time, right around that time, the Obama administration actually really became the first administration to talk about climate change without it being a bad word, without folks feeling bad or fearing retaliation from using that word. And they also provided a little bit of funding to the BIA's Tribal Climate Resilience Program. And so thus, that's been like really helping tribes grow in that space. And ju- and it really just amplifies the work that they have been doing for a long time. And it's just a- an acknowledgement that has been long time coming. So we get people that, I just want to say, we get people that are not wanting to be there because they're unsure of what the course is about whether they're going to be trying to convince that climate change is, that it's real. But in the end, most people learn that if it's impacting them personally, then they will start to listen. Yeah, and they learn that it's their responsibility, right? That's within the Indigenous community, right? I would argue that Indigenous people are very aware of climate change, even if they don't know it. Conservation of land and resources go back to when, I mean, even before America was quote-unquote founded. And then, of course, after the exploration, conquistadors, all of that, land was precious. 
and still is considered precious. So whether they know or not in your session, climate change is generational. Yes, I just want to point out the national parks were created on and on um, indigenous lands. And for a long time, there was this notion, this fantasy that these national parks were created to preserve what was there already to care for it, when in fact it was the indigenous people that were caring for it and putting it in that so-called pristine state that the explorers found it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. We've been, indigenous peoples have been doing this work for a long time. Absolutely agree. I mean, thinking about national parks, right? Bandelier National Park, and that's where Bean Canyon is. You hike up the canyon and there's, of course, little carved caves in there. But all you see is drawings from the indigenous people before and now it's a national park. But what you're saying is the preservation of land was already happening and fought for. Absolutely. We have a lot of tribes who are going back to, fully going back to the traditional, the old ways of doing For example, the Swinomish tribe in Washington are recreating with academic partners, researchers, recreating clam gardens because they are, the coastal tribes are facing sea level rise, land erosion from that, and also calcification from the increasing calcium levels, but kind of had gone away in part due to that, but also with the land acquisition by non-natives. And so they're recreating these clam gardens the traditional way. And so that's really right in line with what you're saying. Wow, that's really cool that it's a tribe in Washington, you said? That is correct. The Swinomish Indian Tribal Community. They're like, yeah, they're about, they're near the Canadian border in the northwest part of the state. Wow, that's super interesting. I'll have to look that up. Now, you travel a lot, you speak a lot, you meet a lot of people. We employ, traveling nurses, doctors to go to various sites around the nation to serve indigenous tribal facilities. What advice would you give to our traveling medical staff as they enter in rural areas, different cultural experiences to serve uh, indigenous people? In the beginning of our conversation, I had stated that the, the continued education of everyone about the disparities of access and especially to health with your traveling nurses and health professionals. It's coming with that frame, knowing that when you're going into that community with that frame of mind that what you see on the surface, of course, has uh, a lot of deep-seated impacts that we can't see we are not just eating, we're not just overweight, we're not just having diabetes, we're not having heat exhaustion due to carelessness, but it's deeper than that. We're face, We're on the front lines of the impacts of climate change, including heat-related exposures, cold-related exposures, drought, and the list goes on. So I really would like our health professionals to, to keep that in mind and to study that before they go into a community. So I, I truly believe that would help Um, your colleagues, not to spend so much time on what is causing this ailment, what is causing this uh, stress level and so on, that they at least have something in mind before they come into the community. 
I will say, Mario, my husband is a tra- not a traveling nurse. He used to be, but he's a um, registered nurse. He works in the ICU and works with a lot of indigenous people. And I am always talking to him about climate change. <laughs> good, good, as you should. <laughs> you guys will learn from each other for sure. Exactly what you said. It's constant learning, right? And uh, when I speak to a, a provider or a nurse before, they uh, are assigned at a specific facility. I ask them questions like, hey, um, how are you feeling? Uh, what do you know about this area? Um, and try and give them some, just some cultural, like, hey, this is when their feast day is. These are some things in the area to look at. That's so important to realize as well. Like, let's look into the history of the land for these people, the generational history and trauma that may come with it. That's so important. Absolutely. You hit it right on the nail. Yes, I learned from you. So what else? Tell me something interesting about yourself. You are an incredible person that is making a change in the world. And it's necessary. And I'm grateful for you. Anything interesting, meaning why you keep doing what you're doing to what do you like to do for fun? Because that is something important to ask each other as well. Uh, well, it's important to our health. We love yes to be asked questions about ourselves. And this goes for people who don't like to talk about themselves. It's a form of acknowledgement, which is really important to our health, right? Our mental, spiritual health, that someone is caring enough to take a minute out of their day to ask about, how are you? You doing okay? What's your favorite thing? I I love that. I think that's so amazing. I keep doing what I'm doing because I truly believe I came into this world with that responsibility and duty Right out, even before I was born, I took my first, before I took my first breath. When I was in my mother's womb, I had prayers. I had the Navajo language. I had a lot of the ceremonies and stories spoken to me. And then, so when I came out, I was, and took my first breath, I was also greeted with that as well. And it's just something that's always been a part of me. As you know, a lot, all indigenous people, we have a really innate connection to the earth, especially for me, because I, maybe not especially, but for me, my umbilical cord is buried in the earth to keep me connected to mother earth and all the elements and to keep me humble as well. And I know that it's my responsibility as a towering housewoman, a Kenya'ani, a son. On my first clan, we were meant to be leaders and to take the reins and encourage people to walk alongside us in this fight against people who don't, people and the notion that climate change is not real and is not happening. I feel it so strong that I have pursued a, a career in this and I'm happy to retire in this field. And I love my colleagues. I love promoting, not maybe not promoting, motivating people to continue the fight. It's very depressing and it can be very daunting. But if we keep going and we keep hope alive, anything's possible. Our ancestors did not sacrifice and face the atrocities that they did so we could give up. So I always look back on that too, our ancestors and the fight that they went through to maintain the language, the culture, and the connection to the earth alive. We come from generations of people who have, as you said, faced historical trauma. 
and it's really impacting us, but yet we're still here today. And with that, I'd like to say that the interesting thing about me, and I think the reason why I still do this job and I'm not discouraged, is that one of my Navajo names is Asta Bahujona, which means the woman who's always happy or smiling. My grandfather gave me that name because I guess when I was younger, I was always smiling, happy, like skipping and talking away. I guess that that spirit about me. And I, I only wish to pass that good feeling on. And I know that it annoys people, especially so early in the mornings. I know I'm a morning person, six o'clock, I can crack a joke. So that really makes me, I think, set and ready for this role, um, my responsibility. Absolutely. And yeah, thank you for sharing. That's that's beautiful. And you use that joy to spark joy in, in others, and we do it together. And this is our planet, so we take responsibility for it. Hear that, everyone? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that we can connect a little bit down the road to see what you're up to. And I want to hear about that conference session about the fire. That's important and something that I think we we forget about. Definitely. I provide a report and I can also connect you with some articles to the Swinomish tribe. I think you'll find that really interesting. It's really amazing stuff they're doing up there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thank you everyone for listening in and this episode. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For the show notes, resources, and more, please visit podcast.tribalhealth.com. If you want to learn more about how tribal health can be a solution to health disparities, please visit us at www dot tribalhealth.com.